0: so you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared.
1: Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. Coming up, Fiza Shaheen, the academic and politician, discusses her book, Know Your Place. Part memoir, part polemic focusing on issues of class in Britain. Faisal Shaheen is Inequality Lead at the New York University's Centre on International Cooperation and Visiting Professor at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics. She will be running as the Labour Party's parliamentary candidate for Chingford and Woodford Green, her local constituency, in the next UK election, which she also contested back in 2019. Joining Pfizer in conversation is Will Lloyd, commissioning editor and writer at The New Statesman. The two spoke earlier this year, in summer 2023. Pfizer had lots to talk about, so there's a second members-only exclusive part that's ready for Intelligent Squared members. Head to intelligentsquared.com slash membership to sign up, and you'll get the extended version of this chat, plus our brand new global affairs series, The Saudi Project, our podcast all about AI, Power Trip, ad free listening, and updates on our live events too or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Let's join Will and Pfizer now with more. The
2: first words in Know Your Place are terrorist sympathiser. And I would like you, if you would, to take our audience back to that moment, which was during the general election campaign of 2019, and then sort of unpack the race you are fighting in, in um against Ian Duncan Smith. It's a very dramatic opening to the book. You really take the reader then. Um, so could you, could you take us then as well?
3: Yeah, I mean that that uh, election got really heated. People will remember, um, and for us in Chingford and for Green, we ran this incredibly big campaign. Hundreds of people came, uh, thousands of people came to support me over the period, which you know we massively appreciated. But it really did worry the Conservatives, and it really did, you know, for the people that weren't with me, they were certainly aware of me and very against me, and so. Um, It got pretty ugly and on election day, I went to go down and vote for myself, which is a polling station not far from my house. And um, I was standing outside and we had a friend that was taking some photos and and these two guys just suddenly came out of nowhere. And they came kind of rushing up towards me, shouting terrorist sympathizer and various other expletives and, um, you know, were very menacing and it was really scary um and I quickly ran in and my husband kind of stood in the way um and um yeah the police were called but they kind of went off but it was it was I was shaking it was quite scary and I know that people in the people who had seen it um you know they kind of sat me down and got me a glass of water it was very sweet but um yeah and so the beginning of the book is that day, you know, as amazing as the campaign was, obviously, it was an awful day for that reason and because, of course, we lost. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the opening of the book.
2: The sort of energy you managed to harness in that campaign, you had Hugh Grant, you had quite big rallies, you know, it's, it's optimism and joy. And it's one of the things that left-wing politics can do. I wondered whether you found lessons in that campaign that could be applied in, more, in a broader way to the Labour Party going to the next general election. Because obviously the mood music in Britain is quite um I mean that's I mean it is quite depressing isn't it so how can politics and kind of cut through people's sense of malaise and um apathy at the moment?
3: Yeah I know for me it's really about speaking from the heart about being honest about my positions on in different areas um and you know trying as much as people as much as possible and which has been a very difficult situation to give people a sense of hope. Um And also the other thing that I really found in that campaign and it's kind of happening again now is that, you know, people would come one time, they would find a community of people that would kind of enjoy themselves, that we would go canvassing, but we'd also go out for lunch or drinks or whatever it may be. Um, And we tried to make it social because if it's not joyful, if it's not about love, if it's it's not about community, then people don't come back and it's a a sort of dry, um, the dry politics that's just functional and that's not inspiring.
2: Yeah. I think something that gave that race an edge was that it was quite personal within Duncan Smith. There is a sort of personal element in this in this campaign that you thought. Could you could you tell us a bit about that? You write very movingly about it in the book.
3: Yeah, no, it was really personal. So I hadn't thought about being an MP before and um, it kind of came up because of just after the 2017 election and um some local people said, like, would you consider running here? And it was funny because I'd watched um, I, Daniel Blake, like, I guess it was a few years before um, when it came out. And it was like, when I watched that movie, and of course, it's a horrible story of how people on benefits were treated and affected by the welfare reforms that Ian Duncan Smith led on and um, compared to the experience of my mom who had heart failure um, and really, really struggled with her health. Like she struggled to kind of walk from one side of the room to the to the other without having to stop, without getting breathless. Um, and she was one of the people that had um th- these people coming to assess her situation, even though she had like reams of, you know, doctors, doctors' notes and and letters. Um and it was the harshness by which she was treated, um you know, to see that firsthand, to know that so many people struggled, so many people were suddenly told that they weren't going to get their benefits anymore um and treated with such a lack of respect um and there was this horror that day I was at home, and I remember I was upstairs, and my mom was really nervous about them coming, and I was upstairs and i and she'd got all of her letters ready from the doctors and and they came in and they were so harsh in the way that they spoke to her. It was like she was a criminal or something. And um, they and she kept saying, but I really want to work. I wish I could work. I mean, she got sick in her mid fifties. Can you imagine? Like, of course, like, do you think that people want to be sick? Um, and so, I, yeah, it, it definitely runs deep for me, you know, not just Ian Duncan Smith, but of course the conservatives in general and what they did with austerity. I think sometimes people that haven't had that personal experience kind of act like it was something that was, you know, 2010, a while ago or something, but the consequences of that played out for people's lives for a long time and still, you know, local schools getting in touch with me, struggling with funding and that's because of austerity. So it is, um, and the various other cruel things that they've put in place. um, Yeah, it it is personal. It it definitely... um, Yeah, I'm against everything. I'm against everything they stand for. Yeah,
2: and yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of um, you know the more memoirish aspects of this book. You write about um, some of your background going to Oxford, and the the book is going to taking us kind of inside these rooms, which most people in Britain don't see. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about what it was like to go to Oxford, um, and what those rooms were like, and. I think I, I think I agree with you about what the people are like in those rooms having occasionally sort of dropped into them. But could you just tell the audience about
3: that? Yeah, I don't have a very I didn't I didn't like Oxford at all. I definitely did not have a good experience in terms of um the social aspect of it. Although, you know, I completely credit it with my politicization or part of my politicization. It was such a lesson in class because of course I'd never been around people and um, from the upper classes. And she went to those very, very expensive boarding schools before. I'd never been around that level of privilege um, and entitlement. And, um, you know, I was uh, in the beginning, I was a bit naive, you know, I just kind of went in and was a very chatty East Londoner and um, just found people constantly asking each other what school they went to and being very confused by that. Like, why would you know my school, the sixth form college I went to in, in Walthamstow? Why would you know? Um, and it, you know, it just just really, int- just a kind of completely different life, um, and you know, things like it would come to the first Christmas, and I was going to work in Gap over Christmas to earn money, and they were all going skiing, and and they were talking about how much money they get from their trust fund, which was like I had my student loan. Like, I mean, it was just just a completely yeah. different life, and you know of course there were some people that were like kind and curious about meeting someone different like me as i was kind of interested in their lives but um some of them were just really rude and and sometimes not necessarily rude to me but rude to my friends that would come up because somehow i was at oxford with them you know they might have considered me smart so i was okay but my other friends that would come and sound really working class or the working class people of color they were so rude so snobby it was just a horrible thing to witness um yeah
0: Code Squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
2: And you worked out. So after you got a you got a big swing in 2019, you're one of the few um, few people mm-hmm. in Labour to, to get a swing mm-hmm. in that constituency. And you just fell short of being Duncan Smith, who was you know, much better funded than you, and you know, kind of minister and this big experienced politician, mm-hmm. and you were very very close to, to taking them out, um, but one of the things you started looking at was statistics, um, which is you're sort of trained statistician, statistician. That that is a difficult word to say sometimes. Um, and you figured out that those it was boys like that in Oxford, people like Boris Johnson and David Cameron. You worked out that they had a one in ten thousand chance of becoming prime minister, and then you worked out the equivalent the number. I, I might be getting, apologies apologize if I'm getting it slightly wrong, but I'm, then you worked out what well, the equivalent number was for, for someone from your background. And I thought it was yeah. one, of those, one of those moments in the book where it's very stark, you really see inequality. So I wonder if you could talk about that.
3: Yeah, definitely. So some, so some of those stats I'd started doing for a show, for a documentary we'd done with the BBC called Will Britain Ever Have a Black Prime Minister? And um, I'd been like the stats geek on the show and I'd gone through and, and looked at um typical pathways to becoming MP and then on to prime minister. And, you know, lo and behold, the vast majority of our prime ministers have gone to either Oxford or Cambridge University. And so kind of tracking that path. Um, and very many of them have gone through Eton um, or a select through of what they call the Clarendon schools. So not just private schools, but the very, very expensive private schools, um, private boarding schools in the country. Um, and I um kind of looked at the likelihood of people with different ethnic backgrounds who were born poor um, to kind of get through the various different um, hurdles there are towards um, going to kind of getting into, uh, doing doing A-levels, getting a three A's, getting into Oxford or Cambridge, um, and then from there, then becoming an MP. And so it was one, and this is without this is just kind of top lines, just looking at poverty really, um, and going to state schools. Um, And it was 1000 times less likely for me to take that route to becoming an MP and becoming an MP than it was for David Cameron and Boris Johnson. And it begs the question, you know, we've been so obsessed with social mobility in this country as a kind of litmus test of how how we're working as a society, you know, like as long as someone poor can make it to the top, then we're doing okay. But it begs the question that even if someone does make it, why should anyone have to work a thousand times harder or even, you know, even most, most of my generation, most working class people, my generation or children of immigrants were told you have to work twice as hard. The truth is, it's much more than twice as hard. Um, But even why, why would we set up society to have those kinds of differences and make you know, make it so, so difficult for some people when it's so easy for others. And rather than expecting someone to beat all the odds, why wouldn't we just change the odds altogether?
2: Yeah. I suppose one of the things you book made me think of was uh, you know, what would what would someone in CCHQ say about some of the arguments? And I think, yeah. you know, what would they do? And I I suppose maybe they wouldn't say, well look at the Prime Minister, you know. Uh, he's a child of uh, migrants, he's part of an aspirational kind of working class, if you go right back into his background, um, you know, the, their boats were lifted by the tide of Thatcherism, this allowed him to go to a better school, then he went to a better university, then he went to America, then he became the prime minister. I just wondered what you thought about that sort of Sunak personal meritocratic narrative that is often yeah. the conservative party. Yes,
3: yeah, so I talk book. about this, yeah, I had to add this section yeah. to the book. Um, last year, when you know, obviously, all this was happening, and everyone, um, everyone was contacting me, saying, "Oh, what do you think about the diversity of the Conservative Party front bench?" And you know, it's um, this is what the kind of shallow, the social mobility approach and the shallow idea that that means that you can just have some representation and therefore we're doing well is okay. I mean, there's multiple reasons why. Um, which you seem like isn't really even the exception. Um, you know, he was from a middle class family, he went to a very, very expensive school, which is, you know, a sign the the extent to which class can trump race, really, right? When you've gone to one of those incredibly expensive schools with those kind of networks, um, and then on to Oxford, then you're not in the same position as someone that went to a state school. I mean, it's a completely different route that you're on and a completely different set of people around you and expectations. Um and so and also you know the thing is about Rishi Sunak and when they use that example how many people voted for Rishi Sunak a few MPs within the conservative party actually it hasn't he hasn't been tested by the electorate so it's it's sort of i find it strange that we kind of use that as an example because it all it is is an example of and don't forget that they that they literally had to get him in and keep Boris Johnson off because if it had gone to the conservative party members they knew that Boris Johnson would have been back again over Rishi Sunak, so it's a very strange example to use. And and at the end of the day, even with all of those discussions, what does it matter when the lives of so many working class people um, in the country has not got any better? It's got worse. Even middle class people, right? You know, this is very clear. Um, what does it matter to have him, even if all of those things were true, which they're not like that, he's some kind of shining example of social mobility, what does it matter? Because ultimately it's still a disproportionate number of, um, black and brown people that are on zero hour contracts, um, unemployed, you know, all of those things. So it doesn't, it doesn't really change anything in society. In fact, you know, one of the arguments I make in the book is that it's kind of, People like him and Braverman have given cover to a set of really quite ugly policies and racist policies. Um, and, and, you know, the Conservatives have been very clever about identity politics and what they hired underneath it.
2: Absolutely. Um, one of the things I really like about the book is that because of the, the statistical kind of nature of it, of parts of it, um, there's a lot of sort of truth bombs that you drop so at one point you just say, social mobility is a fairy tale, and you back this up very well. Um, in simple statistical terms, it is a lie. And New your Place really is kind of a story about social mobility in Britain. And I wanted to ask you, so, uh, how did social mobility kind of fall apart in this country? Why did it decay? Um, and, and, and explain how this made you so disillusioned, as we've kind of touched on already, Like with this idea, with this notion of social mobility.
3: I mean, I guess in terms of like why why it's not the case, I mean, because there was a time that it was the case that people were able to have um, more secure incomes and buy houses and, you know, basically have a better life than their um, parents, um, which is, you know, something that people loved. Of course, you know, people want their kids to be in a stronger, more secure position than they have been. Um, but that only happened in a period, kind of post-war, when there was a much stronger welfare state and the creation of um, various aspects of the welfare state, and a big push to um, invest in different parts of the country. There was a huge growth in middle-level jobs. You know, so there was somewhere for some people to go. And when you look now, there's a chapter in the, la- in, in the labor market ch- um, on the labor market and work. And um, when you look now at the fundamentals, there's very few positions, A, that give people that opportunity to move up. I mean, it's not the case that you can move, you know, from the factory floor up to management, you know, that's just not, that's just not something that exists now. You know, there's so much evidence and data around how many people get stuck in low paid, um, insecure jobs, because there's kind of nowhere for them to jump to. Um, The, the point of the book is to say that structurally, whether you look at the economy, whether you look at education, um, you know, whether you look at wealth, um, the economy um, is not set up to allow people to kind of travel and have more secure lives compared to what their parents had. You know, the housing sector, for instance, is a is a typical example. So um, it's just, it's a fairy tale in the sense that um, whilst they tell you that, you know, the aim for us is that anyone can travel and anyone anyone can like move up this ladder. They have completely um, decimated any sense of um, um, security in people's lives um, or the ability to kind of move and and get different jobs, but um, better paid jobs, um, unless you've kind of been one of the lucky ones. Um, But the problem is as well with that is that And this is kind of the big part of the argument. It's not just that social mobility has failed in its own terms and the rhetoric about it is very, very far away from the reality Um, or that it's hard, you know, that it shouldn't be so much harder for some. It's that it's it's backed up this um, hierarchy of worth and work. And it's told us that making it is getting rich and getting rich is doing a lot of the sorts of jobs in society that aren't even necessarily good for society, you know, being a hedge funds manager or a, you know these kind of really the top paying jobs um have do a lot less for society than the sorts of jobs that are really badly paid and in fact have been undermined by austerity like our teachers and our nurses and of course our care workers um you know our pe- the people that work to keep the country going our bus drivers um you know as we saw during covid the essential workers in this idea of social mobility and making it the essential workers are mainly at the bottom. So it's also a, a complete, you know, my aim is to be like, this is not even a helpful concept. This is a concept that makes society quite ugly. It locks us into a rat race and it locks us into a rat race that many people lose in and feel like failures. And then even those that make it end up doing jobs that probably mean they're making inequality worse in society.
2: Absolutely. Um, and yet, and yet in some, at some level I do, I do feel like This idea of aspiration, however kind of fatuous it actually is when you you get into the data, there is an idea of aspiration that kind of exists as a force in British politics. And I wondered, you know, what do you say um, to working class voters who who do believe in these myths of social mobility? What should the Labour Party say to those voters? Like, how do you, can you just say that this is a lie? Or do you have to kind of harness that force somehow?
3: Yeah, I've been thinking about this quite a lot because, of course, if someone had said to my mum, I was thinking, like, if I'd said these things to my mom, um, who, you know, had this very big dream, these big dreams for us. Um, I mean, she called me Pfizer. Pfizer means winner in Arabic. Um, you know, she was kind of obsessed with us making up for her, for her hardship and the way that she felt, like she was quite kind of quite low down the hierarchy in the UK and was treated quite badly. Um, if I said these things to her. How would she feel? And I think one, she probably would tell us, "Oh, well, you can still do it because you know that's that was like that's the dream." Of course, you know we could, we love it. We love it when people, um, you know, beat all the odds. We love those stories. Um, but I think it's really important to say to people, um, two things: is that yeah, we want the absolute best for your kids. We absolutely want them to do whatever they want to be, whatever they want to do, and that might be, um, you know. They're creative, they're a musician, or they're, you know, um or they're they've got like craft skills or whatever that might be. And we wanna be a, we need to say whatever your child is good at, even if they're not good at maths like I was, even if they're not academically um um brilliant brilliant at other things, then we are gonna make sure that your child has a good life, is respected in society, has a good wage. can have secure housing. Um, And so I think that's like the ultimate promise to make to people because, you know, a lot of parents, there's this like school in the area that is kind of notoriously hasn't done very well for many years. And like when I door knocked in that area just before, just during the time of year that kids do um, the 11 plus, and there were so many working class parents, these are the streets I grew up on. There were so many working-class parents that said, "Oh, I'm getting my kid to do the 11 plus because I really don't want them to go to this school." And you know, most of those kids didn't get in. So you know, at the end of the day, like the Labour Party needs to speak to those parents and say, "It doesn't matter. We're going to make your state school better. We're going to make sure that whatever your kid wants to do in whatever profession, um, that they that they have a good chance at a a happy life." And so I think that. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Like whether they, If they want to go to Oxford and do the academic thing, then that, then that also will be an opportunity for them. But if they don't, that's also fine. There's not one route to be in success or to be, seen, to be seen as successful in society.
2: Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how politics has changed um, since the last election. Uh, obviously the big one is the change in leadership in the Labour Party. Um, like You were sort of perceived to be a, a Jeremy Corbyn supporter on that wing of the party. Um, and sometimes I've read you um, described as the only left candidate yeah. to have been selected by Keir Starmer. And I wondered, you know, do you feel at home in some sort of Keir Starmer's Labour Party? Um, do you accept that label, left candidate?
3: Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's like, on the one hand, yeah, I I believe in public ownership and um, you know I believe in in public investment and I believe that the state has to have clear objectives and a clear vision and. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting how that's defined. Um, and um, yeah, I support Palestine and, and I think that we should, our international policies. Um, but I, you know, I also work with governments around the world who are kind of center left, like I'm here in Germany right now. Um, so I, I find it a bit strange, you know, it's all kind of relative. And I, it, it's interesting that I always get name checked in how many candidates have been selected and been uh, being on the left i think it just makes me feel that um i'm extremely lucky to have the local support that i that i do and um i'm so lucky to have got through um and um it's really important that i you know make these sorts of arguments and i use my voice well because unfortunately um yeah it, i it's it's a, it feels quite a surprise sometimes when i think about how i managed to get through
2: has it been a surprise to you personally, just as an observer of British politics since that election, just how quickly the Conservative Party has fallen apart since 2019? Even if we go back to the Hartley by-election, you know, there's a giant inflatable Boris Johnson by the seaside, and the polls are very good for the Conservatives. I and mean, it's completely fallen apart. I mean, do you watch this? I suppose I wondered if I were you, how would I watch this? At one level, there'd be a sort of sense of glee at how bad they have been a government the country, but then also the total wreckage, you know, the social damage that they've done. I mean, yeah. how, do, how do you kind of watch this? So is it a tragedy or a comedy or some kind of combination of the two?
3: No, it's, it's absolutely a tragedy. I mean, they've totally trashed our country. They've systematically trashed my home, you know, my country. Um, and I feel so angry with them. Um, and they're just caught up in their own melodrama, you know, and it's, it doesn't really even seem like they care. They have no shame about it. Um, you know, Ian Duncan Smith was Liz Truss's campaign manager. I ju- I just can't I, like, how do you do that and like still walk around like you, um, that you've done some good. You know, I I just don't. Um, I I expected Boris Johnson to be bad, you know, and I you know I feel at least that I at least went out and tried to stop that and made the argument against him and the Conservatives, and I. I remember just after the election, doing like news night or doing an event where I was like, "He's absolutely going to fail." But did I expect it to happen in this way? I mean, I knew he would fail on all of his policy promises because I knew he was a liar, and I knew it. You know, the levelling up agenda was completely flawed, um, and so um, I, I think the surprise probably is just just the extent to which his entitlement has played out, and you know that he upset Dominic Cummings and we all found out about the sort of disgusting things that they were up to and partying um, while people were locked down and having their families die on their own. I mean, it's, it's horrific. Um, and then since then, have you ever, have, I don't know, for people that have been to Conservative Party Conference, I went to Conservative Party Conference back in 2017. I was speaking in a side event. It was very interesting. And when, when you see who the members are, then I was not surprised. I knew straight away that they would pick, pick Liz Truss. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't, I probably didn't expect this kind of spectacular shift, but I knew that they would damage our country for sure. Um, and I know always that when things are going badly economically, and even when they're not, they will always pick on refugees and immigration and make that their issue, even though, again, they failed every time on all of their targets. Um, so yeah, it's. It's really sad. And, you know, I've been working internationally and people are just like, oh no, what's happened to the UK? Like, our international reputation is just like on the floor. Um, and it's, it's been embarrassing. Like, someone asked me today about the Rwanda policy and I just was like, I, you know, it's embarrassing. It's yeah. terrible. It's terrible. It's a terrible indictment of our country and our values. Do
2: you think it makes sense for, you know, if Labour get in the next election? To change the voting system to proportional representation, um, and you know, a lot of people look at models of, of of voting patterns under PR in this country, and they say that if you change from first past the post, the likelihood is you will never have a majority conservative government again. Now there are a few caveats you could put with that, but I do I have spoken to people in Labour who are very very keen on this and think that you could basically, you know, put a stake in the heart of the vampire. I mean. Would you you back that, those ideas, that policy? Yeah.
3: I mean, I I talk about it in the book, like that there's a real need for kind of democratic reform in the country. I mean, the House of Lords, I mean, there's still like 92 peers or something that are like completely just inherited, like viscounts and barons, you know, it's so archaic. Um, You know, these people that have a say in our, in our policies. Um, And then, yeah. I mean, I'm on record saying that I support proportional representation. I know it's not where the where the leadership is, but um, I'm an inequality expert. I've worked on inequality for many years. When you look at countries that have proportional representation, they tend to be much better at addressing inequality. Um, and that's not, it's a causal relationship rather than just a correlation. So, you know, and I understand people feel like their votes don't count and how is you know so many people's votes don't count in our current system? I just think it's not democratic. So it's not even about it's not even about it making it more likely that Labour would win in the future. It's actually just about like a basic concept of democracy. And um, you know, I, I I know I've heard Keir Starmer and, and um, the point come up about votes and. People being able to vote from age 16. And I think that's another really important idea in terms of countering the aging population to make sure that young people are getting a voice and who governs the countries and uh, country and influencing the sorts of policies that are put forward. Um, because of that. And, and again, it's a democratic point because you know, we have an increasingly aging population. So we need to find ways to to balance um different perspectives um amongst amongst um citizens in the country. So yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of things. I also talk in the book about you know, us being so london-centric, and I say this as a, as a proud London proud Londoner, but you know, it's it's not really okay that um it's absolutely not okay that um we are so london-centric and our and where our MPs are and where most of the policy making happens. Thanks
1: for listening. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's more of that discussion in a special extended edit waiting to dig into for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership to sign up and get it all in one go, or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.